You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. So we are joined by Andrea Edlow from Tufts Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, for a discussion of oral abstract number eight from the oral plenary session one at the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's really an honor to be here. Well, we were really excited about your research. It's very cutting edge. It's very interesting because one of the things we deal with on a daily basis is the obesity epidemic. And the questions are certainly very pertinent to figure out what is it about obesity that may lend risk for future childhood conditions or chronic disease. And you appear to have researched a specific mouse model. Tell us a little bit about what led to your initial interest in this mouse and and this specific model. So when I was an MFM fellow, my first research project that I did was looking at fetal gene expression in amniotic fluid of obese women compared to lean women who were getting routine second trimester amnios for other indications. And this probably dates me because this was back when amniocentesis were being done (laughs) on fetuses who are stereotypically normal. Um, But we found gene expression patterns that suggested dysregulated brain development. Mm -hmm. And initially, I was actually a little bit disappointed because I expected to find all kinds of metabolic type of findings because I thought if programming was going on, it was going to be in the metabolic realm for the fetus. Sure. And then I became familiar with a whole other literature about the neurodevelopment developmental effects of maternal obesity on offspring development and started down this road. And so all of the amniotic fluid work, and I later did a cord blood study that Mm -hmm. showed some gene expression patterns that were suggesting dysregulated brain development in fetuses Mm -hmm. of obese women. But all of that work is sort of indirect because we're looking at other biofluids and inferring that they are reflecting the development of the fetal brain. But some criticized the work or reviewers or questions that I got at conferences, well, how do you know that this is really the brain? Mm -hmm. So the obvious next step is let's look at the developing fetal brain. And because of ethical and logistical and so forth, other difficulties in directly examining the human fetal brain in ongoing pregnancies, Mm -hmm. we moved to a mouse model of maternal diet-induced obesity. Absolutely. So that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we basically need a way to get mostly to the direct most mechanism that could be underlying neurodevelopment. And of course, that this has always been a limitation. Placenta, fetus, both very difficult to study. So in this case, you chose a specific mouse model. What lends this mouse model to this research specifically? Well, there are several different types of mouse models of obesity. There are all the various types of leptin insensitivity, leptin receptor knockouts, leptin deficiency, goody mice, and all kinds of mice that are genetically programmed to have metabolic disease. So there's a couple of reasons that I picked a black six mouse background Mm -hmm. and diet-induced obesity rather than genetic obesity. I think one of the things is that even though obesity is multifactorial and certainly has a genetic component that's probably polygenic. I think human obesity in the Western Hemisphere in particular, a lot of it's diet-induced. And so I thought that more mirrored the human condition. The females were fertile, which is obviously important if you want to look at fetal brain development inside an Mm -hmm. obese mother. You need the mothers to be able to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And a black six-mouse background is 
one of the best backgrounds to study therapeutics in and I thought for future directions where my research might ultimately be going I was hoping to find some aberrant signaling pathways that might be amenable to correction with the therapeutic. So it provides you a longitudinal study pathway. Now in these animals they were either exposed to a control diet or a high fat diet. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the high fat diet were you specifically focused on certain types of fats that you thought were more important or what, what was the composition of the diet? So that's a really good question and there are a lot of nuances with diet and the types of diets you can choose. So first of all I wanted to choose a research diet mm -hmm. so a commercially available irradiated diet where mm -hmm. the composition is uh, highly controlled and not variable um, so not you know just a chow type mm -hmm. of diet sure and it was also important to me that the diet be matched to the control diet for the largest number of other components possible besides mm -hmm. the fat because I wanted to make sure it had the same kind of fiber that all the other calories weren't coming from sugar mm -hmm. in the control diet so that it wasn't that the high fat fed mice were eating a really low sugar diet and the other mice were eating a really high sugar diet sure. so there are certain things that I wanted to match for and within the commercially available types of high fat diets it mostly comes down to 60% fat diets that are mostly getting their calories from lard okay and so it's a lard based diet okay and then there are 45% fat diets called a Western, Western diet. diet. And that was when I looked at, and in part I chose the 60% high fat diet because there was a good literature around it as reliably inducing obesity. And the biggest thing I wanted to look at was not truly the effect of a high fat diet consumption, mm -hmm. but the effect of maternal obesity. And so because I wanted to induce obesity, I chose the highest fat diet. There are some limitations of that and others have had different views on whether 45% fat diet is better or worse. And mm -hmm. then there are diets called cafeteria diets right. where you just sort of let mice choose palatable foods. Mm -hmm. And the problem with those types of diets is it's much more complicated to quantify what percent calories from fat and sugar and whatever that they're getting from each of the foods. So I wanted it to be highly controlled and that sure. was the benefit of working with mice that I want to take advantage of. Sure. So let's talk about your study design. You started out with you have a lean group and then you have an obese group. The obese group was fed prior to mating, but then in half of those they were switched to the lean diet or to the yes. control diet yes. and the other half were kept on the high fat diet. And then of course the focus of this research was specifically gender based differences between how these animals responded. So tell me a little bit about the study design. So you sort of captured it. I had dams that were fed a high fat diet for about 12 weeks after weaning. Mm -hmm. And then I had control lean dams who were fed the control diet for the same period of time. So the dams were the same mm -hmm. age, which is important. And then when the mice became obese, and part of the reason the feeding period was so long is that males actually become obese much faster on this diet and females have some hormonal or other milieu mm -hmm. that makes them actually more resistant to obesity on that particular diet, mm -hmm. female mice. Mm -hmm. Sure. Again, right. probably not translatable to the human condition. Right. But so it takes longer for them to get obese. So I had to wait a long time for mm -hmm. them to achieve an absolute gram weight that was substantially higher than the controls to ensure. Okay. And then I characterized their body fat composition using echo MRI to make sure that they also had a very high percent body fat. And 
then we mated the mice with control males, and when we saw a vaginal plug, we switched half of the obese dams to the control diet. Mm -hmm. And my intention in doing this was really that I thought the obese dams who continued on the high fat diet in pregnancy would biologically be the most different than the sure. control dams and then the high fat diet dams pre-pregnancy who then were switched to a control diet would sort of be like a second control group because sure. I wanted to look at the effects of maternal pre-pregnancy obesity separately from the mothers eating a high fat diet in pregnancy which others have looked at the high fat diet consumption but haven't looked as much at the additive or synergistic effect of pre-pregnancy obesity on the offspring. But what I ended up finding was something quite different. Yes. <laughs> so, so I think it was very interesting to us that in this particular outcome where we looked at gene expression, mm -hmm. we found that actually when the obese mothers continued on the high-fat diet, when you compared males and females to their corresponding sex-matched controls, there were actually very few differentially expressed brain genes that met our significance threshold. Mm -hmm. And when there were far more differentially expressed genes in the brain when we switched the obese females to a control diet in pregnancy. And this was unexpected because biologically it would make more sense that the obese dams who also were further exposed to a high fat diet would be more different than controls. And I think in this case, a couple things could have been going on and mm -hmm. all this is speculation. But when we looked at the brain gene expression patterns of the embryos from obese dams who changed to a control diet, mm -hmm. there was some evidence of increased catecholamine gene expression okay. and other things that suggested stress. Stress. And we also observed, and when we looked at the weight curves in pregnancy, that the obese dams who changed to the control diet, even though they were pregnant and normal weight dams and the other obese dams were all gaining weight steadily in pregnancy, mm -hmm. these dams initially lost weight by pregnancy day 10. They regained to their pre-pregnancy weight by the mm -hmm. end of pregnancy, but they mostly didn't have a substantial net weight gain. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's a little extreme to say it this way, but I think it would be more comparable to the human situation of obese women than starving in pregnancy okay. rather than just eating healthier or just doing a little lifestyle change, which is sure. sort of more of how I had envisioned that group. So I think that's something different about mice. Right. And humans, and I don't know that we can say, oh, it's really harmful or right. it's not right for humans to change to a lower fat diet in pregnancy. I don't think it's ready for that type of translation at this point, but there's certainly something there about what the mom eats in pregnancy and if it's different than their previous habits. Mm -hmm. might be something. And I think we know this from like the Barker hypothesis. Right. You know, if you were starved in utero, when you really developed the metabolic complications is when you had access to all these Correct. fatty foods and so forth later on. If you were then starved also as a child, you didn't develop those metabolic syndrome type complications. Sure. So I think it, the change may be what's problematic, but I don't know that it's translatable to the human situation just yet. Do you think there's any patterns of pathways that seem to be common threads and which ones are different between genders? So that is a really good question. One thing I was going to say is that this paper is going to come out in the SMFM edition of the Gray Journal. Okay. So it kind of details with both in diagrammatic form and also in written form, mm -hmm. what are the commonalities and differences between males and females. But broadly speaking, in the setting of, of any type of maternal pre-pregnancy obesity, whatever diet that the mom was on in pregnancy, both male and female brains showed evidence of dysregulated immune 
inflammatory and insulin signaling mm -hmm. and cell cycle dysregulation and reactive oxygen species metabolism pathways that were dysregulated. So those seem to be common threads throughout. And we saw also that brain development was certainly dysregulated in both males and females. But males had, roughly speaking, more dysregulated pathways that might be related to different types of behavior dysregulation. Mm -hmm. okay. And then females had more pathways that were related to synaptic transmission and microglial apoptosis, mm -hmm. certain very specific brain regions that the pathways analysis was suggesting were dysregulated. And the great thing about this study design is that we actually also have histopathologic sections of these mm -hmm. brains from these diet groups. So the next step is to use this microarray data to really guide our staining and sectioning sure. of these brains. And so that's the next thing that we're looking at is different regions of the brains that seemed abnormal and right. doing neurobehavioral testing on offspring who were born sure. to mothers in each sure. of these three diet groups. So all that is underway. That is very interesting. We want to thank you for taking time out and congratulate you on your work. This is oral presentation number eight. Males are from Mars, females are from Venus, sex-specific fetal brain gene expression signatures in the mouse model of maternal diet-induced obesity by Andrea Edlow. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we are joined by Dr. Annalee Boyle from the University of Virginia, who is presenting poster 373, Clinical Management of Stillbirth. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Chris. So stillbirth is clearly a very important topic that women deal with throughout pregnancy. Providers also have a difficult time because there's not formalized guidelines on how we manage, how we deliver, how we take care of these patients. So tell me a little bit about your study. Well, I agree with you. Unfortunately, about one in 160 pregnancies will end in a term stillbirth. And this is a tragedy not only for the patient and our family, but really for the entire healthcare team. Unfortunately, a lot of the data that we have is extrapolated from either management of a mid-trimester abortion or miscarriage, or extrapolated from a full-term induction of labor. And there's really no kind of clear guideline on how we should manage a stillbirth clinically. So what I did is me and my co-authors looked at the Stillbirth Collaborative Research Network, which was an NIH-funded study to capture over 500 stillbirths in five different geographic areas within the country between 2006 and 2008. We limited our data to singleton pregnancies and found that about 15% of stillbirths were delivered via C-section. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. So clearly, when you look at the differences between those two, what were your findings as far as successful vaginal delivery versus those that did have a cesarean? Well, actually, the majority of C-sections had no obstetric indication, which I think was very surprising to all of us. Most often, it was patient request. And I think that that does make sense because this is a painful time, and there is a tendency for people to want to get things over as quickly as possible, but that doesn't you know, take into account the long-term ramifications of cesarean delivery. As far as induction of labor, if we had hoped to look at several different methods and be able to compare them, but the overall success rate for people who had no prior C-section who underwent induction was 98.5%, which I think really suggested that it doesn't matter what type of induction you do, be it a prostaglandin E1, a prostaglandin E2, or mechanical dilation, or you know some combination, that mm -hmm. they will all be successful. Awesome. One of the things we often deal with is the patient who comes in who has a term stillbirth but had a previous cesarean 
end delivery. Does this evidence give us any additional information about those patients who might present with a previous cesarean? Well, even with a prior C-section, you can have a successful vaginal delivery. Unfortunately, there were two cases of uterine rupture in our cohort. I don't think either of them could have been predicted. One was a 22-week demise that was confirmed by ultrasound findings that had been induced with mesoprostol. She had had one prior C-section, no successful vaginal deliveries. The other patient had actually had a successful vaginal delivery as well as a prior C-section, a 37-week stillbirth that was also complicated by anencephaly. In those cases, however, neither woman ended up with a hysterectomy. And truth be told, a uterine rupture is actually more dangerous for the fetus than the mother. And in this case of stillbirth, that risk is taken out. Also, interestingly, women up with up to four prior C-sections did have successful vaginal deliveries of a stillbirth. That's very reassuring. I think that's very helpful information. What would you say are the take-home points that you would like to leave the audience with concerning the management and outcomes of stillbirth in these circumstances? You know, I think managing stillbirth takes a collaborative approach with the patient and the family um, and the entire healthcare team. I think that we all want to do what's best for women and ultimately with education, more women would elect a vaginal delivery as opposed to a C-section because of the long-term ramifications. But it does take a long time and, you know, a lot of hand-holding and a lot of sympathy because this is a really, really difficult time, not just in the immediate postpartum period, but something that will be with these patients and us for years to come. We thank you very much. I think it's a very important topic and you certainly have shed a lot of light. This is Annalee Boyle with Poster 373, the clinical management of stillbirth. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Chris. And we are joined by Sam Rabengard, author of Poster 295, entitled Early Diabetes Screening in Obese Women. Sam, thank you for joining us today to discuss your work. And thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about what led to your idea to pursue the evaluation of these women who receive early screening. So after seeing the ACOG Practice Bulletin and ACOG Committee Opinion recommending that obese women uh, receive early screening, I was interested to see how well we're doing that as clinicians in an inner city hospital. And so I wanted to look at uh, what were the characteristics related to early screening and diabetes of pregnancy. So in your population, what is the typical, anytime we're looking at a study like this, what was the background for how your practice would normally work in your hospital system? So I think that varies uh, to provider to provider. And and I think on a national level, that's probably how it's divided into. Mm -hmm. And some providers are screening obese women and following these recommendations, and some may not have bought into it. The recommendation isn't based on a randomized controlled trial Mm -hmm. or any solid evidence. So what type of study design did you use for this? So this was a a retrospective cohort of obese women, and so we looked back at charts from 2011 to 2012. And then you were able to identify around 500 women total that you were going to look at, and approximately one in four or 27 percent or so had early diabetic screening. What were the things associated with a provider deciding to perform early diabetic screening? Yeah, so what we found is actually only 27 percent obtained early screening and so that was a surprise to us Mm -hmm. and quite lower than probably what we'd like. But what we found is probably providers have an inherent bias and they're probably screening patients maybe unconsciously Mm -hmm. or consciously looking at women that have a higher BMI older age, 
and are more likely to have comorbidities such as hypertension. What were the differences in the management of those patients who were identified early versus those patients who were identified later in pregnancy? Again, there might be some provider biases in those women that are older and have more comorbidities. Um, people might be watching them a little bit closer. Okay. So were they more likely to be managed on insulin in those pregnancies? Yeah. So actually what we found is um, women who were diagnosed through early screening were probably more likely to have severe disease okay. and were more likely to require insulin. Okay. Did you follow these women through pregnancy and figure out like who actually gained a diagnosis of diabetes instead of gestational diabetes? No, but that would be interesting to go back and look and see how many of these women were actually overt diabetes. Sure. And Any significant differences in maternal or fetal outcomes? Yeah, so that was the, the secondary outcome that we looked at. And so what we found that were women who received early screening were more likely, there was no difference in maternal outcomes, mm -hmm. but what we found is there was a higher rate of NICU admission to those women with early screening. Okay. What would you like to leave the audience with as far as the take-home of early screening? Well, first of all, I think we need to do a better job following our recommendations. Mm -hmm. Second of all, I think this is a stepping stone for a call for more research and even a randomized controlled trial looking into whether early screening for diabetes makes a difference in outcomes for women. Very helpful. Thank you very much for joining us today. This is Sam Ravengard, poster 295, early diabetes screening and obese women. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.